Hello and welcome to episode three of Cutting In From The Left. I'm your host, Tom Wise. I've got my friend Luis Antonio Street with me again. How are you, Luis? Hi, Tom. Uh, doing well. That's good to hear. This is episode three, the hat-trick episode. This weekend was FA Cup weekend, so we're going to focus mainly on the four games that took place over Saturday and Sunday. They were Bournemouth, Southampton, Everton versus Man City, Chelsea, Sheffield United and Leicester versus Man United. I'll start by talking about the South Coast derby, the Bournemouth-Southampton game. This finished 3-0 to Southampton. Um, they were worthy winners, to be fair. They had two goals ruled out because of VAR. Uh, Bournemouth looked like a championship team that weren't really that interested in the cup. They're more focused, I think, on making it into the playoffs to get promoted to the Premier League this season. So they didn't really mind, I don't think. But yeah, I was I was happy to see Southampton come out on top. They've had a lot of they've had a, ter- a sort of terrible run, haven't they, in the league? So it's just it's nice to see them really really batter batter Bournemouth. Uh, City went through beating Everton two 0 in the Joe Derby. Everton played pretty well, but City just got the better of them in the end. Gundogan scored, as he always does. Chelsea, Sheffield United. Chelsea won 2-0. Giroud started and he got his first minutes since the end of February. Uh, He didn't really do himself justice in terms of nailing down that number nine spot in the Chelsea team, even though Kai Havertz has been quite disappointing. He got subbed off around the hour mark, but Chelsea still won 2-0, like I say. Sheffield United had their chances, but as any team down the bottom has found out, you don't really get any luck when you're struggling. And then the best game was probably the Leicester Man United game. Leicester won 3-1. I think for me, the main talking points were Man United's strange lineup. Like they went into this and they rested Bruno Fernandes, they rested Scott McTominay, they rested Luke Shaw, they rested Cavani. They all came on in the second half, but yeah, I found I found that really strange, and, and to Leicester's credit, they they deserved it. What what did you what did you make of it, mate? Yeah, in regards to team selection, I thought it made more sense for Solskjaer to perhaps start with those players, and then if they're doing well, then you you take them off after sixty minutes if you want to conserve them a little bit. I feel like I mean it is a quarter final. I think a lot of my United fans, I'm sure, were surprised that he would start with a intentionally weakened lineup like that. But yeah, I think all credit to Leicester. And I think, to be honest, they've done really well this season. If you look at it, I mean, third place in the league at the moment. Um, and, you know, looking at like they might well get a, a Champions League spot. And they've got now a, a cup semi-final to look forward to and a very winnable one against Southampton. So, I mean, they could fancy their chances if they get top four and a, a cup final or even a cup win this season. That'd be a great, great performance from them. I think good to see uh, Kelechi and Nacho starting to, to get amongst the goals again uh, because I always thought he was a really bright, promising young player even when he's at Man City as well. But stagnated for a while, perhaps even before his move to Leicester and certainly in his time there, now looking to perform a little bit and also really impressive from, from Yuri Tillerman to midfield. Um, he's certainly a bright prospect. I think they paid £40 million or so for him uh, when they bought him. But he's certainly proven to be a player who's getting better and better could be a target for Mary, maybe the very top teams in Europe as well. I think I saw the stat that Iannaccio's now got nine goals in his last nine games. He's he's playing amazing. Like He's never sort of hit these levels before in his career. 
Leicester sort of now playing two up top by having him and, and Vardy together, which is quite brave, but it's, it's really paying off for him. Um, yeah, I, I think with Leicester, like, they're, they're just so exciting in every area. Even uh, I, I love their um, the centre-halves of Evans, uh, Soyuncu, and uh, Wesley Fofana. Like, I, I think mm-hmm. three centre... There isn't... I think most most teams in the league would have all three of them in their, in their team, really. Even, even Johnny Evans, which against obviously his old team in Man United. Is is Harry like he's Harry Maguire that much if he is better than someone like Johnny Evans? I I know that Man United would probably say, you know, obviously he's he's better. He's we paid this amount of money for him, you know, he's a he's a one of England's start main men sort of thing. But I I thought at the time when they got rid of Johnny Evans it was a crazy thing to do. And you know, he's still he's still right at the top, like you say, they're in third place and they're they're playing really well. Yeah, and I think the thing is with Maguire, you probably think that his ceiling is a bit higher and perhaps he can do a little bit more on the ball in particular. I think they're also counting on him to be a threat set pieces perhaps more than he actually is at the moment. Um, I think he does bring a lot more in terms of a well-rounded game than someone like like Johnny Evans. But if we're talking pure defensive ability, ability to kind of slot into their back four, the experience that Evans has, as you say, so Jewett and Fofana as well. I mean, let's do have a really strong group of centre-backs there. Um, and I think they've got some up-and-coming young defenders as well. For example, the likes of James Justin. I had to kind of step in after that in, a long-term injury to, uh, to Ricardo Pereira. But yeah, they've got quite a few good talents there. Um, I'm interested to see what Rodgers can do with them. He's obviously well-versed with coaching young players as well and bringing them through. It's always been a, a trademark of his. So, yeah, exciting times, I think, for them again. And I think, yeah, perhaps two up front really does suit them. After all, they won the league title with two up front. And having that foil there for Vardy takes a little bit of the pressure off him, perhaps uh, takes defenders off him as well, gives him a little bit more space, uh, which is useful for, for him too, especially as he gets a little bit older. Leicester, especially having the injuries they did to James Madison and Harvey Barnes, a lot of people thought they were going to struggle. And I think I've probably said it on one of these episodes as well, that they're going to sort of fade away now, akin to what they did last year, falling out of the top four. But, you know, I was completely wrong. Like, they they look really good at the minute. They look really hot. And they've got every chance of, of winning this competition, which would be great. Going back to Man United, I wanted to sort of mention Donny van der Beek. Like, he's someone that, <laughs> I, yeah, he's someone that, I kind of I've wanted to see more of this season. Like he had a great reputation. He was so good for Ajax a couple of years ago in their Champions League run. Um, but he was just pretty non-existent at the weekends. Um, and I, I think I wanted to bring up a comparison. Sort of Eredivisie players, they're very hard to predict when it comes to to how they impact English football. Like for every Ruben Istroy, you've got a Matager Kesman, or for every Luis Suarez, you've got a Vincent Janssen. I just, I just wondered if you've seen anything from him that suggests he's actually going to kick on. Yeah, I'm just think an example of Afonso Alves as well. <laughs> I don't know how many scores, holes he scored in the Eredivisie. And he just went to, to Middlesbrough and yeah, could hit a bar door. Um, but yeah, I think a player like Van der Beek, I, I don't think with him it's the same as some of the other ones in terms of being found out at not being up to the right level, um, sort of being a flat-track bully in the Eredivisie. So he did show in Champions League, for instance, that he's got high quality. But I think it's just perhaps a confidence thing as well when when you're playing in a team week in, week out with such cohesion as Ajax, when you've all grown through the ranks together, that you're confident that if you have one poor performance 
or if the team's struggling a bit, you've still got the same cohesion, that squad of players who've been together. But the manager's going to trust you to have a good run in the team. Uh, Van der Vick's been in and out of the team a little bit. Um, I know we don't know what happens in training. Maybe Solskjaer has not seen enough of him to, to start him week in, week out. But if you're not perhaps settled into the club, especially a new league, new country, um, and you're not really in the team, you're sitting on the bench quite a bit, then when you are asked to perform, it's obviously a lot more difficult. Um, and the structure of the midfield and the team that he's in is obviously a bit different to, to what he had at Ajax as well. So I think it's far too early to give up on him. I think they've just really got to try to bed him in, make him feel comfortable. Because the talent is there in the midfield. I mean, obviously, how many times we've talked about Paul Pogba in the English media in terms of why isn't he performing at his level best? Why isn't he the world-class player? We all know he can be. And it seems like it's almost added another puzzle, another layer of the puzzle with Donny van der Beek, which isn't the worst problem in the world to have, Solskjaer, because you know the talent's there. But then it's all about harnessing it and what can they actually do to bring the best out of these players? Yeah, I think he's going to have to... It's going to be hard for him to assert himself, really, because I'm not 100% sure Solskjaer would have him in his sort of starting eleven. He he has he's used him so sparingly, hasn't he, this year? But, yeah, I think you have to sort of give him a chance and be fair. I think for any player coming from another country, another league, to play in the Premier League from last summer, you've got to give them a certain amount of time, especially during these COVID times, like how hard it must be to settle somewhere that's completely alien to you. So exactly, yeah, yeah. I, I think then I think players that came over last year, they you know they deserve a bit of uh, time. Um, so yeah, like we say, Chelsea City semi and a Leicester Southampton semi to come up. Um, you got any early predictions on these? I'll stick my neck out and say it won't be 9-0 between Leicester and Southampton. <laughs> um, but no, I think that actually could be the more interesting tie. I think that'll be a really fun game. And both sides, I think, will throw everything into it. Uh, I mean, particularly Southampton, it is, at this point, the most important thing about their season. I think we all know they're not going to go down and they're not really going to compete for, for certainly not for, for top four or even really for Europa League. So they might as well put everything into this match. And for Leicester, I mean, a great chance for them to win a trophy. So I think they'll go for it. Uh, Hell for Leather as well. So that should be a really fun game. Uh, and depending, obviously, who's fit on both teams, I think you've got some quality players, uh, English players as well. Interesting to look at. Uh, likes of Ward Prowse, Bardi, Barnes, Madison, if they're fit. Um, and yeah, that should be should be a really fun tie. I think there could be a few goals in that one as well. Um, and then Chelsea, Man City. Obviously, you've got two teams who have other priorities as well. Thinking about the Premier League, the Champions League in particular. So I'm not sure exactly when the two ties fall. We just need to compare that to when the, the legs of the Champions League quarterfinals and semifinals are as well. Yeah, so looking at it, uh, both of them games are 17th of April. Um, but I, what would the Champions League, can you remember? So Chelsea have a second leg against Porto on the 13th of April. Oh, right. That is quite close then, isn't it? But then I guess you could say that Chelsea would be fancying themselves against Porto from the first leg, perhaps, uh, to be able to get the job done and then be able to rest a couple of players uh, in the second leg. And then Man City, Dortmund... The second leg is on the 14th, um, and that's an away leg for them as well. So that'll be probably quite a tough game. I'd imagine Man City will be looking to put out their strongest team there. Um, so that could be a factor, uh, especially we know that Guardiola 
does tend to rotate um, and sometimes throws up some some interesting or even slightly bizarre team selections. So um, I have to watch and see with that one um, and whether the likes of perhaps, as, you, as we were talking about Giroud or someone else like that might force their way into the Chelsea lineup. But yeah, it's still back Man City. I mean, that record you you listed, was it February 2018? Yeah, last season they didn't win the FA Cup, did they? They lost once then, but that's their only loss in a domestic cup game since Feb 2018. So that is pretty mad. And I think you have to respect it really, don't you? Like I... I see myself as one of these people that I love the FA Cup and I've got so many memories of going to see third round games for years and years. And so I'll always have this attachment to it. But on a wider thing, like a lot of people don't really have that sort of love for it, do they? Whereas Pep Guardiola is definitely, you know, he's, he even cares about the Capital One, the Carabao Cup, you know, he even cares about that. So fair play to him. I think he just loves winning, uh, which you've got to respect at some point. Uh, you've got, yeah, I think a manager like, like Klopp perhaps is willing to, to throw the domestic cups to a certain extent. Um, but Guardiola knows, especially with the squad that he has, I mean, why not go for it? Why not just go for, for winning a quadruple every season? Because you've got the resources, you've got the talent, let's do it. are coming up and getting in the way of domestic football yet again it's World Cup 2022 qualifier time uh, England squad's been named for their games their free games against San Marino Albania and Poland uh, these are all happening the next week uh, the big news is that Ollie Watkins has got his first call up and Sam Johnston the West Brom keeper has got their first call up uh, John Stones has been named in the England team for the first time since October 2019. And Luke Shaw's been named in the England team for the first time since, since September 2018. Jay Lings is back. He is on fire. Rightly got his, himself in the England team. I think in terms of omissions, mostly people are talking about Trent, Trent not getting in. I've got the squad in front of me. Uh, what, what are your sort of early impressions? Do you think Trent should have got in? Or do you think two two right-backs is enough? <laughs> I do think two right-backs is probably enough. And I think it's a hard choice between them. It also depends, um, I guess, exactly what kind of shape you're going to play. Look, I think as a Liverpool fan, to some degree, it's almost good not to have players in the squad at the moment. Just let them have a bit of a rest. Let them collect themselves. And I think that leads to the broader point that it does seem a bit weird that you're going on with international football as normal in the middle of just a ongoing pandemic. Well, I don't think the, I mean, you could push these games back and I feel like it wouldn't make a huge difference. You could shift a few things around with the scheduling, you know, after the vaccine roller has perhaps gone a bit further. Um, but anyway, in, in terms of that, I do think uh, Trent in general has been a bit off this season. He's not quite been at the level you expect him to be at. I don't think He's been bad. I think people are just judging him against his usually 
trying to say high standards, which is fair enough. And yeah, I think Rhys James has played well this season. Uh, Kieran Trippier has done well, but let's go as well. Um, so you can't really begrudge them their place in the squad either. Uh, and they offer similar things in a sense going forward, particularly Trippier in terms of set pieces, crossing ability, etc. So I don't honestly think that Trent will be a big miss for these games, particularly since, I mean, no offence to the opposition, but I think England will be looking to beat San Marino and Albania, uh, whatever happens. And so it's a good opportunity to try out a few different things. And to be honest, I generally agree with the selections. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, if Jude Bellingham gets more minutes for his belt for England as well. He's starting to get some more time for, for Dortmund. And yeah, Ollie Watkins, I think, is someone that has impressed me coming into the Premier League this season. Really used to strength ball, holds a ball up, but also a goal threat. And I think a player like him would really be an interesting player for England. We look at the likes of, uh, of Kane and Calvert-Lewin. He almost fits into that same mould. Kind of like a classic English centre-forward with their strength, their aerial power, but also with that bit of pace and that bit of skill as well, which really helps at the top level of the game. So yeah, I think overall it looks like a pretty well-balanced squad. I uh, can't really say there's too many issues with it, and I think they should should be interesting to see in, the, in those fixtures. I think it'll be interesting to see how it goes. I think this is like the last time, potentially the last time they meet up before he has to pick his main squad for the Euros. I guess the only worry for Trent is, you know, if he's not getting named in this squad, is the writing on the wall for the, the final 23-man squad. But yeah, like you say, I don't I don't think you can really begrudge um, Trippier or Rhys James getting in ahead of him. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's there's too much else really to pick out about this. I, I was just surprised at how the World Cup qualifiers have sort of jumped up. It, it, in a world where you can have like the the Johnson's paint final from one year on a Saturday, and then like this season the Johnson paint final on the Sunday, it almost shouldn't be it shouldn't be surprising that that we're starting you know 2022 World Cup qualifying when the the Euros of the previous year haven't been played. I'm looking at England's group right now, and it is a it is a classic England qualification group. It's it's one of those where it's like if you're not winning ten out of ten, then you're almost disappointed. Poland will probably be the hardest game, won't it? In that, um, yeah, for sure. Other than that, I couldn't say too much about anyone else. Hungary, they haven't been good, have they? Really, since the days of Puskas. So the legend Zoltan Gira, but uh, <laughs> apart from him, not much else. Yeah, or uh, Gabor Kirali. The famous keeper wearing his tracky bottoms every week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think England should breeze through that. I've always found with England qualification, it's quite funny because I'd like to see what other countries think of think of our teams. Because whenever we go into tournaments, it's always like England have won, you know, 90% of their games. So do, do other countries like actually fear us or do they sort of look at look at the group we've won and think maybe they're not as good as they're cracked up to be? <laughs> I think they'll look more at our, our past uh, knockout performances and see they're generally not that good. Um, of course, uh, a good World Cup last time out, um, even if it was helped a little bit by the draw. I think it is quite an exciting England team in some senses. You have got some great young players, uh, like so Jaden Sancho, for instance. And I think if you can keep Harry Kane fit, which I think he has had quite a few niggling issues over past couple of years if you're really sure that he's fit and firing you've got the likes of Sancho and Sterling in good form next to him then England are probably as dangerous as, any, as anyone going forward um, and I think if they can sort out the midfield in particular holding player I think if Declan Rice can step up into that role 
and provide some good cover for the defence. And that could really help provide some stability for the team as well. So I don't think England will be among the top three favourites, but I think perhaps in that group just underneath, and you're thinking they could be dark horses, they could definitely um, trouble anyone on their day. a segment that I like to call same club who dis we've got five questions each with three players and I'm going to ask Luis to write down the club that links all three players okay my man are you are you ready are you pumped I'm pumped good I think uh got five out of five last time so looking to extend that record yeah, I've tried to uh, try to take out as many Midlands clubs as possible this time, so <laughs> should should be harder. Right, number one, Scott Parker, Damien Duff, and Alan Smith. Number two, David James, Brad Friedel, and Paul Koncheski. Number three, Joey Barton, Chris Samba, and Bobby Zamora. Number four, Armand Traore, Frederick Picrion, and Gary O'Neill. And finally, number five, Charlie Adam, Joe Allen. And Kurt Zuma. Okay. Early thoughts. How are you feeling? You feeling confident? I think so. I think so. A couple of tricky ones in there, uh, but we'll see. Okay. Right. So we'll reveal the answers at the end of the pod. Now we'll do our article of the week segment. Luis, would you like to take the reins on this one? Yes. Um, so I came across an interesting piece uh, in The Guardian by, by Nikki Vandini. They're basically going over the, uh, the Serie A results for the week, but particularly the Juventus result against Benevento. Um, so they slipped to, a, to an uninspiring defeat. I think really that the main point that was being brought up was around Andrea Pirlo and his, well, I guess, success or lack of success so far at the helm of Juventus uh, since he took over. And also c- comparing that a little bit to, to Filippo Inzaghi, who is actually coaching uh, Benevento at the moment. So obviously two really well-known, I mean, top-class uh, Italian players of the relatively recent past. So I think that just got me thinking a little bit in terms of 
as well with the news of Xabi Alonso apparently essentially being confirmed for the Borussia Mönchengladbach job uh, from next season. And just how many of these really prominent former players that retired oftentimes only a year or two ago and walking straight into some very prestigious jobs. I mean, we're talking jobs at Champions League clubs, clubs which are well-funded, clubs which are able to push for league titles. Um, so obviously we had Gerard at Rangers, uh, who's you know, fulfilled his mandate very well and a great league title success for them uh, this season. Um, but also the likes of Pirlo, who have struggled. Uh, and just thinking about how come all of these players are getting these roles without having experience, perhaps in the lower leagues, uh, even with someone like Derby County, for example, Frank Lampard, uh, at least had that experience for a couple of seasons before being transitioning on to, to Chelsea. As you see with, with Arteta, another example as well, hadn't managed another club before Arsenal, being one of the biggest clubs in world football. And I think it chimes in a lot with our discussion last week in terms of the way the game is moving. With the increased commercialization of the game becoming more and more global and it being limited to, to certain clubs which can get a lot of media exposure. Exposure on TV uh, and the press in general and making sure they can get that revenue from the large broadcasters as well. They need to have the biggest names. And that doesn't just apply to players, but now I think coaches as well. They almost need to be a celebrity in order themselves. And a lot of the people coming with a game disposable income and wanting to spend money, spend time watching the game, remember these players because obviously they were around for 10 or 15 years while they were growing up watching the game. Uh, they associate with them. And I think people in general associate much more with a player than they do a manager in, in large part. But there's much more of an emotional connection. A manager is often seen as more disposable and people will naturally blame bad results from the manager and sub players as well. So then people brought up a huge link with, say, Inzaghi or Pirlo or Gerard, and then transfer that onto the team that they go on to manage. And I think clubs see that as a very useful conduit for attracting attention from the media, as well as then support, um, potentially merchandise sales, and just getting people to watch them on TV. That contributes to larger contracts as well. And it's that increasing sign that you have to do whatever you can to stand out. And there's almost a set of teams that are what everyone wants to talk about week in, week out. And then all the rest of the teams are seen as almost also rounds. And a way you can get yourself visible again is to say, we're going to hire a very high profile former manager, sorry, former player, um, and get ourselves that that starlight, that, that sense of... of belonging in a, in a global game, whereas perhaps, say, 30 or 40 important clubs and the rest are left at the wayside. So you saw that with Patrick Vieira as well. Uh, so you had Nice scrabbling to hire him, quite a few clubs scrabbling to hire Thierry Henry as well. And no offence to either of the two, but again, not really proven managerially. In fact, having some embarrassment, I guess you'd say, in Henry's case at, at Monaco, you had Gary Neville, for example, um, being involved in an embarrassing situation at Valencia. So you have all these really high-profile former players whose manager ability is sometimes, obviously not always, but dubious at best. And they seem to be being used more as 
as pawns for attracting media attention and supporters rather than a serious ambition to bring in a talented young manager to be able to improve the team. And I'd be curious, obviously, to hear your thoughts on it as well, Tom. Um, but that does feel to me like a really cynical calculation that club owners, club chairmen are, are doing um, that that will benefit the club more than actually hiring a competent manager, perhaps a lot lower profile, but could actually, you know, do a job and help transition the club as opposed to someone who would just bring in some really cheap and quick media attention like a like a former player who's just retired. Yeah, like I think that's that's really interesting because the more you think about it, the more players who've just become managers you can think of, isn't it? Like I when I was looking at this beforehand, I completely forgot about Vieira going into management. I completely forgot about Henri and Gary Neville obviously as well. Like Henri and, and Gary Neville especially like they stand out as two two terrible uh, examples of of these of world class players so world class players not being able to sort of transfer that into management and yeah like you say about owners trying to sort of game game these players as managers to purely on a sort of commercial aspect to draw attention to their clubs I think you'd have to say that was the case with Derby you know they've had They've had um, Frank Lampard, obviously. They then had Philip Koku, who you know maybe not on these shores, but he's he played at a very high level of European football. Um, and then obviously Wayne Rooney now, like they're clearly using this model of getting well-known players to attract attention. Like there was the joke, weren't there? That there are Frank Lampard's Derby County, and it's just it, it stuck, mm. and it, it got to a point that people would just say it without realizing almost. And I think I think. Like you say, Gerard's done a really good job at Rangers. They've obviously got the title. Uh, they've either got it back or it's their first title, depending on where you sit. But he, you'd have to you'd have to say he's done well with that. But yeah, surely when he was hired, I'm sure it was like no coincidence that he happened to be one of the best players of his generation. Like it, it, almost even if he sort of flopped at Rangers, I'm sure it wouldn't. It could have almost been seen as like a risk-free move to appoint him. And yeah, the the fact that Juve were playing, uh, Perlo's Juve were playing Inzaghi's Benevento at the weekend was quite interesting because Inzaghi himself, he'd been the Milan, the AC Milan manager after like a year or so, something like that with the youth team. Back back in 2014, he got appointed as Milan's first team coach. And I looked up and he lasted only a year there and they finished 10th in Serie A. Um, Milan have obviously had been really poor in the in the last decade. And he was just one of the managers, I think, that contributed to it. But yeah, it was another manager who is a club legend and didn't didn't quite kick off like he wanted to. Gattuso as well. Gattuso is another one who, yep. you know, he hasn't set the world alight. But is there a group of managers like who maybe haven't had these like glitzy careers that are sort of being overlooked for these these superstars? Like, I'd be interested to know who they were. Almost like you've still got. You've still got managers, haven't you? Like um, Mourinho, say, who didn't have any playing career to talk about. Um, Sari, you know, he had no playing career to talk about. So th- I guess there is still certain certain players, uh, certain managers, sorry, that have come from a different background. But I'd definitely say the, there's been a rise over the years of these sort of elite elite players going into management too quickly. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the top players have often always gone into management. I mean, the likes, if you think about very successful managers like Doug Leach or Johan Cruyff, 
uh, often, you know, at the top of the game as players as well. So I don't think it's, it's unprecedented in that sense. But as you say, they're, they're going into it very quickly. Um, they're not really getting much coaching experience beforehand, it seems. Um, there's often kind of these stories that pop up as well of, oh, um, I don't know, Gerard or Vieira or the top player recently retires and, and goes spends uh, perhaps a few months at a, at a training camp or sort of setting in on training with another team or acting as perhaps a first team coach. Uh, at a big club under a top manager for, for a couple of months. And obviously that provides you with some kind of training and background. Does it actually prepare you to, to be manager of a, especially a top level club when you have so many responsibilities these days uh, under so much pressure and such a spotlight when you're, you're expected to, to hit the ground running uh, and, and win almost every week. And if you look at Pirlo, he's come in uh, obviously to, to Juventus side, which he used to, to walking the league every season, essentially, essentially a decade now. And then he's really struggling now to, to coax results out of them. They're 10 points behind Inter Milan in the league. Looks like they're going to lose it this time. And so that's obviously not his fault. He was kind of coming in when they were on a downward curve already. But perhaps it's indicative of when a club starts becoming a little bit desperate. Um, and I think you see that with Juventus' attachment to Ronaldo as well. Obviously still one of the best players in the world. But they seem to, to think that Ronaldo is going to solve all their problems and the team increasingly become built around him. And so when you're building around, in this case, the, almost, the individual personas of Ronaldo and Pirlo as almost icons for the team who help keep the team popular and prominent among fans and the media attract attention, when in fact it's not doing a lot for their results and it's not actually helping them achieve success. So at what point do you say, actually, if you look at the best-run clubs in Europe, the clubs that achieve consistent success, and I think in particular of Manchester City, obviously have a, you know, Pep Guardiola was a pretty prominent player in his time, but he very much went through the steps of first coaching the, the Barcelona B team, being instructed in that whole La Masia way, before then going on to become Barcelona manager. Obviously, by the point he got to Man City, very much one of, if not the most proven manager around so when you look at a club that seems to set up really well like that and has a long-term vision and a long-term plan, you don't see them resorting to, to almost cheap stunts like bringing in a popular ex-player to, to buy some time for the fans and get some prominence before moving on. Um, and that's perhaps the difference then between them and, and even someone like Chelsea, you felt, you felt got a little bit desperate, brought in Lampard to appease fan base after perhaps Sarri didn't go down too well among some sections of the support. But yeah, I think you'll start to see this uh, more and more. I've already seen it. And I think it, it might even reach the peak. We have, as you say, Derby um, doing it and perhaps more and more championship or lower level clubs will start to do this as well. Just to get, try to get that media attention and eke out a little bit more, more revenue and attention, especially as more of that seems to concentrate around the European mega teams as well. And it's not entirely bad in the sense that it does provide an outlet then for often very talented professionals who do have what it takes to become a top manager, perhaps need that chance. But you are squeezing out then coaches of less prominence who themselves are very well equipped and could, if they had the right opportunity, then rise up to the top ranks. And as you're saying, even someone who comes from a, a, not as much a playing background perhaps a, a formal translator like uh, Andrea Villas-Boas or, or someone of that ilk 
And if that route's not left for them anymore, then you're shutting a lot of very talented people out of the top ranks of football management, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, another example, Nigel Adkins. I think he was a physio previously or something like that, which is a pretty great jump. Or, yeah, like Sari was a banker, I think, or something crazy like that. Yeah. But, yeah, I, th- I think it'll happen more and more. I think I do think with Juventus, like you say, it, it has to be sort of analysed on a case-by-case, case, a club-by-club club sort of basis. And Juve have been going downhill for a long time while, while still winning Serie A titles. And this point in Perlo is in a very similar vein, like you say, to... To sign him Ronaldo, um, I was thinking the only the only successful ones I could think of. You know, I, I like Pep, like you said, he he did have a couple of years as the B team, and I think they won the Spanish fourth division or something like that before he came up to replace Rijkaard. So obviously he he was a success, and uh, Zidane, of course, as well. I feel Zidane like as well, yeah. You'd have to say Zidane because he'd I think he did maybe three, two or three years with uh, two years, sorry, with Real Madrid Castilla before he took the main job. So I think those two are examples. And I think it's funny with, with Zidane almost, because I still think with their European Cup successes, the three in a row, it was all, they still probably wouldn't go down as like one of the best teams ever. But they, you know, they won all these, they won the big competition in Europe three years in a row. No one had ever even held on to it. But, you know, you have to give that to Zidane in a way, don't you? Yeah, and I think that's one of the cases where, his prominence really did help. I think he had enough of a public profile himself that he wasn't overruled by Ronaldo and Bale uh, and Benzema um, and Ramos, for instance. Um, so he was really able to assert himself, I think, in the dressing room and just say, okay, I might not be the, the greatest tactician of all time, but you know, I know how to win. You know me, uh, everyone knows me. I'm one of the most famous players of all time. Uh, you're not going to sort of out sort of best me in the media with your tricks in terms of trying to, to, to dominate me or, or play some power, power move uh, in notorious kind of Spanish football press. You know, you're going to listen to what I say. Uh, I'm a Real Madrid club man. Uh, I know the team. I know the club. And just add that cohesion to the team and say, okay, we know we have the talent to do it. Uh, let's just control everyone's egos and work together. Uh, and that showed in the, in the tremendous success that they had. And that's, yeah, we see the, the almost a perfect fusion then of having that, that prominence as a, as a just retired, really famous ex-player, as well as certainly some managerial ability and competence there to be able to, to lead the team. And I think that's probably what a lot of teams are hoping for. That's almost what maybe when Juventus were thinking when they hired Pelo, they say, oh, he can be another Dan, another cultured uh, midfielder who who leads us to Champions League success. But I think that's almost trying to recreate lightning in a bottle. A lot of problems you get with clubs, actually, that is them trying to explicitly copy what another club does without actually understanding the factors that led to that success. And so, for example, even I think you see that with Manchester United uh, trying to copy Manchester City almost, which is a weird turn of events compared to, compared to the old days, if you think about even 15 years ago. But you see them try to spend all this money uh, in certain areas and build up a spine of the team like Manchester City did, but they just don't seem to get it right with their signings and they don't fit together. There seems to be no cohesion or long-term plan when that was something that you definitely can't say of Manchester City, who always seem to have a very clear plan of every signing, how they're going to fit into the team. Um, they've got that 
sort of director of football structure, but combined with giving Pep Guardiola a fair amount of say over the squad building as well. Well, Man United always seem to be kind of playing a bit of random chuck a dartboard and see who we can buy in Europe, whose club doesn't reject us outright. And then you get all these signings coming in who are obviously good players, but they don't fit into, into any kind of strategy. Yeah, the plan is is the most important thing, really, isn't it? Like you can you can put in your club legend who's played, you know, 600, 700 games, but if you don't really have that plan in place, like Barcelona did all those years ago, you know, like Man City do, it's not going to work really. It's, you can't just throw money at something and, and hope, hope it sticks. And, you know, Juventus have come to realise that this year, no matter how many league titles you've won in a row, you can't just put Andrea Pello in and win your 10 in a row. So it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. Apart from Xabi Alonso becoming the Mönchengladbach boss from the summer, there is another ex-player who's been touting his name around trying to get the Celtic job, and that's Roy Keane. He, I think we've not discussed him, but I think in terms of legendary players becoming managers, I think he's another example of one where he just doesn't didn't have the temperament. I, I sort of think, do you think it's something to do maybe with great players not necessarily understanding that other players aren't on the same level as them? Like, you, I, I could see Roy Keane as a man demanding so much from every one of his lads and he's managed Sunderland and he's managed Ipswich Town. They're not, <laughs> there ain't going to be many lads playing who were playing for them at the time that could do the kind of things that he probably could do as a, as a 40 year old, you know? So I wonder, like, do you think that comes into it sometimes with these top managers? They just can't get on the same wavelength as the lads they're managing. To be honest, I thought that was an issue with Gerard at first. Um, because it seemed like particularly his first season, he was having a bit of trouble because he was being quite outspoken in his interviews as well that sort of saying that the players weren't doing quite what he expected them to do and he was a bit disappointed at times. And I think a lot of people, even at the time, were worried that he was going in that same direction, perhaps, as Roy Keane and starting to blame his players for not being as good as he was. Perhaps he was sort of given a little bit of a, a word in the ear by someone or he realised a little bit more in terms of his overall experience. He's very much seems to be um, a lot more relaxed in his interviews. He's He's not really blaming the players very much. It's perhaps understanding uh, the limitations of what some of them can do, but also trying to get the best out of them. He seems a lot happier and, and kind of, yeah, a lot more contented in the role as well. I think definitely with Roy Keane, it's not entirely his fault as well, because I think it's almost like Chairman brought him in to be some kind of enforcer. I think that's certainly true with, with Sunderland. It was, I, think there was, I mean, there's, Sort of a lost decade, or at least for Sunderland, where it was notorious for having players who'd come in on fat contracts and just essentially use it as a, as a piss-up. Um, quite literally, in some cases, I think you had the likes of Darren Gibson, who was caught on camera, sort of drunkenly slagging off the team in a pub. Yeah, I don't know how many of... how many things he had. He definitely had that. He had did he have drink driving as well? And, and, a, and yeah, there were else. a couple who had drink driving. I think there was like a group of five or six players who were known for basically just going to the pub every weekend, even after Sunderland lost. People would just see them out and go, what is going on here? And it was expected that, I mean, if you remember Paolo Di Canio as well, he was brought yeah. in with that same mandate, I think, as Roy Keane was basically sort these guys out. Um, so kind of playing up that public image of the two was these sort of famous, really technically gifted, but also enforcers. I mean, really hard men who would sort things out. 
then it's almost setting them up to lose because you're playing up to this sort of stereotype that they're going to come in and act like an army drill sergeant. And quite frankly, I mean, obviously you have famous managers and top level managers who are known as disciplinarians, say Capello or Alex Ferguson, but they don't sort of lead with that perhaps. They lead with having the right players, having the right tactics. It's not all just about sort of putting the boot up a player's ass. It's it's much more kind of nuanced than that. Um, so when you're just expecting someone to go in and shout with the players, then that's not really going to motivate them. It's just that question where, yeah, you, you have this idealized image of what someone can do, but you're not actually thinking it through as a long-term strategy. You're not saying, oh, what kind of squad can they build? What kind of tactical plan can they institute? You're just saying, uh, can they throw a teacup at someone in the dressing room? It's not really going to help anyone. <laughs> I loved uh, Ireland's little experiment when they had Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane together, and it was like the it was just so good cop bad cop. Like you could imagine, <laughs> you could imagine Martin O'Neill just trying to like appeal appeal to the the players' sensitive sides, and then you've just got Roy Keane telling Harry Arter that he's not Irish enough and stuff like that. After their success on Sky Sports, I wouldn't be surprised if some uh, club came up with the idea of having Michael Richards and Roy Keane together, <laughs> sort of playing that role. <laughs> Spill it! Where's your brother? You'd better answer him, Lisa. He's a bad man. <laughs> what are you laughing about? <laughs> you started off as the bad cop, and now you're the good one. You and Willie got mixed up about ten minutes ago. We did not. Now where's Bart? You better tell me. <gasps> you better tell him, Lassie. I cannot control him when he gets like this. <laughs> now you're the good cop. What? So now we'll go through the answers to the quiz yep. earlier. Let's, let's, let's see what have you got. So I'll go back over them. Number one, Scott Parker, Damien Duff and Alan Smith. What club did you have for this? Uh, Fulham. You're going to be disappointed. Newcastle. Oh, yep. Because Alan Smith hasn't played for yeah, Fulham. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I loved that one. That was really conniving. Okay, uh, two, David James, Brad Friedel, Paul Koncheski. That's when I thought about it for a bit. It's Liverpool though, isn't it? Yeah, it's Liverpool, yeah. I was going to say Tottenham at first. I thought putting the two keepers in as well, two keepers that I don't really associate with Liverpool. I thought, yeah, that would be a bit of a stumper. Um, Joey Barton, Chris Samba, Bobby Zamora. Uh, that's uh, QPR. Yeah, that's QPR. I think they... all from a similar period of... Um... When they were splashing money around on just the most mediocre players. Yeah, I remember. Do you remember Chris Samba going out to Russia and then he, I think he came back in the January transfer window to QPR for maybe like eight million, and then obviously they they got relegated in embarrassing fashion and they had to like flog him off back to Russia as quickly as possible. Yep. <laughs> Number four, Armand Traore, Frederick Piquion, and Gary O'Neill. Believe that's Portsmouth. Yes, that's Portsmouth, and then. Number five, Charlie Adam, Joe Allen, and Kurt Zuma. Uh, Stoke. Yeah, that's Stoke. What did you get then? Four out of five. It's not bad. I'm glad, I'm glad, yeah. to, have, I'm glad to have tripped you up at least this week. I think we'll call it a day there. Uh, thanks for coming on again, Luis. Thanks, Tom. And we'll hopefully be back in a couple of weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye.